Welcome to Real Life Moms. I'm your host, Lisa Foster. And Real Life Moms is a podcast where moms have real conversations, share resources, and tell their inspiring stories. Our mission is to connect moms by talking about these topics that parents deal with every day and to continue these conversations in our Real Life Moms Facebook group, where we would love for you to become part of our community. This week, we are joined by Dawn Friedman. Dawn has been working with kids and families for more than 30 years as a preschool teacher, family case manager, and psychotherapist. She has her master's in clinical mental health counseling and has additional postgraduate training in infant and toddler mental health, postpartum mood disorders, and child anxiety treatments. In today's episode, Dawn will help me discuss children and anxiety. Hi, Dawn. Welcome to Real Life Moms. I'm so excited to have you on the show today to talk about children and anxiety. Well, hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And just to start, can you share some of your background with us? Sure. So currently I work as a therapist here in Columbus, Ohio, and I work with, I always say, little kids, big kids, teens, and adults. And I, all the kids that I see are anxious. Anxiety is a big issue. And so I've gone to get extra training about anxiety. And I have an anxious kid now grown myself. And through my training, realized, oh, I was an anxious kid. That sure explains a lot. And with COVID, I realized I could offer some of this information to people online. So my COVID hobby was building out more direct offerings for parents around child anxiety. Okay. Well, there's a lot there. So I have so many questions for you already, but let me just start with, you mentioned like anxious. So can you actually define anxiety? Because I personally kind of get confused. Like just if someone is anxious, that's not necessarily that they have anxiety, is it? Well, exactly. Anxiety is a healthy emotion. We need to be anxious. Like I I bet you're a little bit anxious before you you interview someone on this podcast. And so you you're extra careful. You probably make sure there isn't any weird noises in the room. You do well, you already told me you do a little reading so you know who the heck I am and <laughs> and so you prepare. So anxiety is is healthy and it's necessary and it's great. The problem is if it interferes with our functioning. So if you yearn to start a podcast and your anxiety doesn't let you do that, then that's a problem. That's an anxiety issue. Okay. So you just said that you were an anxious kid as well and that your kid is also anxious. So I'm wondering, is this like a common thread? It can be. Anxious anxiety is nature and nurture. So you cannot make someone who is not going to be prone to anxiety, you cannot give them an anxiety disorder. And that's even true. So some people will experience a trauma and develop PTSD, which in the old DSM was under anxiety disorders and now is its own thing. Not everybody will get PTSD. We, we have brains that are, make us more prone to things than not. So it is never a parent's fault if they have an anxious child that child had an anxious brain. However, we can teach anxious children how to tap in more to their anxiety than maybe we wanted to. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm very afraid of water, I don't like swimming in water that goes over my head. And because I was aware of that, I deliberately avoided going in water with my kids and asked their dad to do all of the swimming lessons because I knew they would catch my anxiety. I knew that I would not be able 
to react in a non-anxious way and that they would pick up on that. And I wasn't so great about not being anxious about other things that I was less aware of, but I could be very deliberate about not passing on my water anxiety to them. So I have so many thoughts come to my head. So my mom had anxiety with, or she was anxious driving. And to this day, she still does not drive on highways. I do drive and I do drive on highways, but I always feel a little anxious actually stepping into the car before I drive. So I feel like that kind of rubbed off on me a bit. Um, Now my daughter just started driving and that was one thing I definitely did not want her to feel when she was driving. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. And because kids do, anxiety is very catching and it's supposed to be catching because if we're out there in the world, we need to catch somebody else's anxiety so we know, oh, I I need to I need to get ready to do something. I need to be prepared that there might be danger. So anxiety is meant to be catching. And of course, we are very 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 connected to our children and they're very connected to us. And so they are hypersensitive to when we are anxious and they are always watching. And then also sometimes we pass on the anxiety in a much more obvious way, like saying, oh no, there's a spider, don't touch spiders. In in our house, we do not go anywhere near spiders. So there are many ways we can pass pass anxiety on to our children, but that doesn't mean it's our fault. It means once we realize that, we have the opportunity to do something differently. So, okay, here's another question. So my daughter is very anxious. I mean, our whole family is anxious. We have lots of anxiety in our home, but I always struggled with when to push and when not to push. So for example, um, my daughter, who's much older now, uh, something that she struggled when she was younger with was she was afraid of bugs. So specifically bees, to the point where she did not go outside. And I mean, it it was bad. She would miss parties, like in preschool. She wouldn't go outside for recess. And to the point where actually her teacher asked us to take her for allergy testing to see if we could even push her outside. So I guess my question is, when do you know when to like push or maybe push not the right word, but maybe just coax them into the fear? And when do you, when don't you? That is so tricky. Like the question you're asking is, is such a a big one because yes, we do need to help our children face their anxiety. And I had a bee kid too. I also had a kid who one summer, the backyard, we had an apple tree. There were always bees around it. So I hear your screams, sister about that. Mm -hmm. So it's what we have to do is we have to figure out where is the anxiety holding our child back the most. And maybe that's what we need to go towards. Now, there's a whole complicated system to figuring it out that involves sitting down with the child or with yourself, with your partner, somebody who knows the child well, if the child is not interested in doing this with you, and kind of figure out a fear ladder, which is here is at the very bottom, I can look at a picture of a bee and it doesn't scare me. And up here at 10 is maybe cleaning out a beehive. And, and then we figure out how, where can we start stretching the child a little bit so we can do it in a very systemic way. On the other hand, if you lived in, I'm trying to think of some place where there might not be bees, like mm. in the North Pole and there are no bees, well, you don't have to worry about it. It's not an issue. It's not holding the child back. But mm. generally, children who have a specific phobia like bees, they often will be anxious in other areas too. And, and what we're trying to do 
is not solve their anxiety or fix it or eliminate it. We're trying to teach them how to manage it. Because if your child one day can sit out at a picnic table and there's a bee around and they don't go run and run screaming, that's a success story. They mm-hmm. can take those skills and tools out into the world. So in college, when it's finals and they're freaked out, they can go, I know how to do this because I conquered bees when I was seven. So mm-hmm. I know how to do this. Yes. And it's interesting that you talk about that fear ladder because what was recommended to us um, at the time, honestly, was to go to this butterfly pavilion. And there, there's a beehive and the beehive, it's kind of encased so you can watch the bees go outside and come back in. And we just sat there for hours watching these bees just to kind of learn that, you know, what they're doing and they're not really there just to come and attack us. So she did conquer her bee fear. Um, I mean, I think we're still all afraid of bees, but we can all go outside now. So that is great. That's, I love that story so much. And it really, it's, that's exactly it. So the more that we can deal with the discomfort, the better off we are. But sometimes we need to start really low on that fear ladder so that we're only just a little bit uncomfortable. Like we're not ready to full on go out there into the world where there are bees, but we can look at bees from behind glass. Yeah, that's great. What if the parent also has the same fear as the child? I really love that you asked this because all the research shows that it's working with parents that makes the difference. And when I was working with kids, I don't really do that as much since COVID. But when I was working with kids, it became really clear to me that I could only get so far because 50 minutes with me once a week or once every other week was not going to do anything. I really needed to get with the parents. And also we're asking children to do heavy lifting that maybe they don't want to do. Like maybe they're, they're like, I love not going in the backyard. It's terrific. I am not interested in tackling my fear of bees. And Mm -hmm. so then we really need to talk about that intervention with parents. And when I would do an intake with a family and it was clear the child had a lot of anxiety and I could see the parents had a lot of anxiety about their child's anxiety, well, then it was clear anxiety was running rampant in this family. Mm -hmm. When parents learn to manage their own anxiety, they can pass that on to their kid too. So just like we can teach them how to be anxious by mistake or pass on a sort of anxious mentality. We can also pass on being calmer and learning to manage our anxiety. But again, it has to be a fear you care about conquering. Mm -hmm. So if mom is not interested in not being afraid of bees, I wouldn't start with that. Mm -hmm. I would find out another place. And very often it's helping them manage their worry about their kids. That's the first most present anxiety in our discussion together. And so maybe we start there. Okay, I'm going to give you another scenario. It's kind of like my own little private session. So thank you. But here's another scenario that I'm going to throw at you. Um, So at one point, my daughter had a real big fear of gun violence and going to the mall. So we live in Colorado. And a while back, there was a shooting in a movie theater. And so this was a big fear of hers to go to the theater. And I remember being in the theater with her and a stranger walked in and her response was she was uncomfortable and she needed to leave. Now, in that situation, that fear is not hers alone. I mean, that's a fear of mine as well. And I feel like when I'm trying to go through those motions with her and talk her through it, you know, it it becomes very difficult for me because it's such a big fear of mine 
that I don't really know what to say um, because I'm also very uncomfortable as well. Uh, so I'll share here. We're a transracial adoption, adoptive family. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband and I and our bio son, we're all white and our daughter is black. And she also recently started driving and a lot of, you know, she's really afraid about getting pulled over because yeah. in Columbus, we had a couple of kids who were killed by the police. And I, yeah, I share that fear with her. So all of you parents out there, yeah, my heart is with you. It is, it is a scary time to be a parent and there are very real things to be afraid of. We, we can look at the news and, and see that. And that really lies at the crux of anxiety treatment and management is how do we learn to live to be happy in a world that is scary? How do we learn to continue on with our lives and go to movies and drive around and know that we cannot guarantee our own safety? That is the great existential work of anxiety. It's, it's, mm -hmm. There's no easy answer. Mm -hmm. It's really about we have to learn to tolerate it. Our children have to learn to tolerate it. And I venture that many of, of your listeners, when they became parents, they felt like all of a sudden their awareness of the scariness of the world really becomes apparent. And whether you went through postpartum anxiety officially or not, that is an awakening for parents. What's that that quote about having your heart walk around outside your body? Mm. And yet we have to learn how to parent. We have to learn how to let them go. We have to learn to let them get on the bus. We have to learn to let them move away. That's yeah. what we have to do. So it, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because the bad news is there's nothing you can say. We have to learn to live with it. We have to mm. learn to live with it. Well, that's not good news, but okay. <laughs> It's, it's not great news, but we can learn it, right? There are specific skills we can learn. There's specific coping that we can learn. And to be with our children as they come to this realization is really a profound gift because it is an existential crisis. It is, it is, it is confronting. I mean, frankly, it's about confronting death, really. And that's one of the ways that we come alongside our children is to say, how do we learn to be people when it is so scary and we are so fragile and we love each other so much? It's big, big work. Are there any tips or tools that like a parent could try just even in the moment with an anxious kid? Like whatever they were anxious about, like whether it's going to school or doing their homework or a social issue. Well, the, the big thing is don't try to fix it because it's not fixable. Mm -hmm. Anxious children ask us to reassure them over and over again, and we get stuck in a reassurance loop with them. But we can't really reassure them, right? Because their anxiety is, is bigger. And they're not really, they're, it's not just bees. It is this great big, but the world is unsafe and you can't protect me. And I, that is too big of a, a thing for me to understand. So we can reassure them once. We can let them know that um, it, I know that dog is not going to get you because there's a fence there. And I know you're not going to flunk out of school because you, you do pretty well. Uh, you can reassure them once, but then you just have to be with them in the moment. And mm -hmm. that's about validating that emotion. I understand why you're anxious. It's scary to be five and to have to do show and tell. It's, I know, bees, what can you do? They are, they are kind of scary. We have to learn to live in a world with bees. So we can validate them, let them know that we are with them and not get sucked into the argument. That keeps them trapped. And then in the times when they are not anxious, 
we can notice the things that make them happy. I notice you're real, really calm when you play with Legos. I notice you really love to be cozy under that blanket. I notice when you hug the dog that you have a big smile on your face. Because we're trying to get them to tune into the way their body feels when it feels good. And then when their body feels anxious, we let them know that's anxiety. That headache is anxiety. You're probably pretty tense. Let's see what we can do to relax. Maybe you could hug the dog because I notice you have a big smile on your face when you do that. So it's, it's really long over time work because our children need to learn over and over again. How does my body feel when I'm anxious? How does my body feel when I'm calm? And then keep bringing them back to that. Kids learn things over and over again at every new stage of development. So sometimes we have to be broken records. Okay. This is so helpful because, all right, first of all, I just want to say that my child did go to therapy um, because, yeah, I have done so many faux pas just listening to what you had just said. But it is helpful to hear because I do feel like it's just exhausting. It's exhausting as a parent with a child who has anxiety because it is that constant loop and you're constantly reassuring and saying, no, you got this. You're okay. And I feel like I do get stuck in that loop. And I think I get stuck in that loop because I really just want my kids to feel better. And I want to be able to help them. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I mean, that's one reason why I went and got that training is because I could sense I I wasn't helping. As, and, mm-hmm. and she wasn't listening to me. The kids in my office would listen to me. She doesn't listen to me. I'm her mother. Yeah. And, and so the more I dug into the training, the more I realized, oh, I'm contributing to this. I didn't mean to. And it, it makes sense because my other child who is not anxious or at least doesn't have this level of anxiety, those exact same tools worked. So that kind of reassurance and encouragement worked. It doesn't work for an anxious kid. It, it, it's not our fault that we go that way first because it makes sense it would work. It just doesn't work for an anxious kid. And if we're feeling stuck, then, you know, we, we call a therapist and, and that's what we did too. Because like I said, I wasn't helping her. She needed someone else separate from me and I needed to do my work too. And again, anxiety is catching. If my kid wasn't feeling good, I wasn't feeling good. I wanted to help her feel good. And it felt very distressing for me not to help in the way I really yearned to help. Now, when you were saying training, is this training for your profession or was it a parent training? It's actually for my profession. I got trained by uh, Ellie Lebowitz, who designed the SPACE program. And I forget what SPACE stands for, but he's out of the Yale Child Study Center. And he basically went and took all the research about, they call it accommodations. It's when we're accommodating instead of supporting anxiety and accommodations keep kids stuck. So I went Mm -hmm. through his formal training and then went back and read through all the research because there's a huge body of research about this that came out of really looking at OCD and how people get stuck in OCD loops. And the more they did the research, the more they realized that parents get stuck in anxiety loops with their kids. Uh, What Ellie Lebowitz did was formalize a structured program that's very specific. And I like it but I mess with it a little bit. You, you can mess with it. He does have a book and, and people can read it. Uh, so you can follow his plan exactly or you can structure it to better suit your family. I'm a pretty casual person. So something that was that formal, that's not the way that we did it in our family. But I will do it that way with clients if, 
if that's their preference. So you do talk about the pandemic a lot. So are you seeing more anxiety with children and adults? Yeah, everybody. And, and of course, the problem is those of us who work with kids, we're all full right now. So it's really hard to get in and see someone. So that's a big issue. But I will say, too, that even before the pandemic, 25% of kids, 5 to 18, I think, uh, would meet criteria for a diagnosable anxiety disorder. And the what I would see in my office, and still the calls I get, are at 5 and at 8 for boys, just so happens. Wow. Usually around 9 or 10 for girls. That's when I get a lot of phone calls. And then on into the teens. And and I think there's kind of specific reasons for that. And, and it's totally anecdotal. I'm not going to go dig up research. Anxiety crosses a lifespan. But I think part of that is five is when we start saying, I thought you would have grown out of this by now. And I think we see that in boys sooner than girls because our expectations for boys are different and boys tend to externalize anxiety. So they're, they're more tantrums and yelling and hurting and girls tend to internalize. So eight is a big anxious age anyway for kids, whether or not they have an anxiety disorder. So I start seeing that nine and 10 for girls, I think because they start getting kind of depressed really. And parents spot that and start seeing some anxiety in that. So nine and 10, they're getting depressed. Why do you think that is? I think this is my guess. And again, I'm, I'm, this is anecdotal. It's just happened in the past two weeks. I've gotten three calls from parents of 10 year old girls. Um, I, because of the social stuff, there's a lot more social pressure at Mm. around nine or 10 for girls and the relationships get a lot more complicated and that that's a hard time to be a kid. And and for me, so I'm a physical therapist and I'm a pediatric physical therapist and I also do cranial sacral work, which works with the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing, which is interesting, is a lot of ticks and Tourette's. Yeah. 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 Have you noticed that? I just talked to somebody about this. So they've said that they've, they're noticing pandas like behavior after COVID infections in some kids. So I'm curious about that. Yeah. And sometimes, of course, we don't know what kids have had COVID. So there's that. Now, now the other thing about ticks, though, is that they are developmentally normal for some kids. They'll go through periods of ticks. Mm -hmm. And if they don't last longer than six months, we can just chalk it up. Okay. so, So that was a weirdness. Which what that tells me is that for many kids, ticks are a way that they they attempt to self-regulate and soothe. Mm. And we are seeing rising levels of anxiety. So I would expect to see more coping, more coping mechanisms coming up, both functional and dysfunctional. It's also interesting, truly. Um, but I do have some listeners who had some questions that I want to make sure I get to. So one question was... Do you have any insight on when to know if meds are needed? I say that have that conversation with your pediatrician anytime you want. So you know, well, what are the options? What makes sense for a child this age? When would the pediatrician think it's a good idea to prescribe it? Because the more information you have, the more you can make a decision before you need it. Like you you can just say, okay, I have this information set aside should I need it. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, I, I mean, it's above my pay grade and outside of scope for me to say at okay. this point. 
But if your child is really, really, really trapped and really struck or really stuck, and you're already working on it, you're already doing all the things and you don't seem to be gaining any traction, it is definitely a good time to have a conversation about it. And you're saying a pediatrician. For some reason, I was thinking maybe a psychiatrist is. I would. The truth is, I would always prefer that someone have access to a psychiatrist because Kids are a special beast and they're growing very quickly. And so having someone who really understands and knows how to prescribe for for kids is ideal. However, at least here in central Ohio, and I know many places around the country, that's nearly impossible. So again, I would start the conversation with a pediatrician and then maybe start, uh, get on the radar, find out who is a prescriber, who is a a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner, there's probably a wait list. Many of them uh, are full fee. So families may need to save up money to go see them depending on if they have an HSA or FSA or so starting that conversation now before you think you might need it or when you're just thinking about it, because starting that conversation doesn't mean you've decided your child to go on meds. It means you've decided that is an option you want to know about so that you can make a good decision about. But I I would start with the child's doctor because you're going to need it for a referral. No, that's a good point. And, you know, is there an age that, you know, with all the brain development and medication, is there an age that you would want to like wait, like um, you don't do medication before five or anything like that? Again, that's, that is a, a discussion for a prescriber. It's, it's definitely outside of my scope. Yeah, okay. um, and definitely, but I will say that I agree with you that the younger your child is, the more you need someone who is trained in prescribing psych- uh, psychiatric medications for kids. Definitely, definitely. It, it's just so complicated and difficult. And it's not that your pediatrician won't do it or can't do it. It's that it, it's really a good idea to have someone with a really strong grounding in what's going on. But again, treatment has shown to be very, very effective. And so you have a lot of options before you get to meds. The concern about the meds is generally they're antidepressants and they do sometimes increase suicidal ideation in kids. Oh, that's good to know. Um, Okay, so switching topics. So talking about screens, okay? So another question that came up through our listeners is screens and social media and how that might affect or contribute to anxiety. Who, you know, there's a big one. It's a it's a big one because we have to be realistic here too. Yeah. And our kids are going to be on screens more and more if they get iPads at school, right? So they're going to be on screens. They need to learn how to manage it. And also, I've seen parents try to limit social media for kids. And what happens is the kids are getting it on somebody else's phone, or they've figured out how to download it on their phone or iPad behind their parents' back. So so basically, this happens a lot in my office. The child will download Instagram. The parents will say, you're not allowed to download Instagram. And I saw that you did it. And so now you got to delete it. And the kid goes, oh, gosh. But the, if the kid downloads it again, the parent doesn't see that it got downloaded again, because it's already it shows sort of in the cloud in the shop. And so that right. what kids do is they download it at school and they undownload it, they delete it before they get home. So what I'm saying is give up if you think you can keep your kid off social media, you can't. <laughs> so what you have to do is have ongoing discussions about it. You have to participate. Maybe that means scrolling through with them. 
if you can limit it, if you can do parental controls, although the kids are really good at hacking, you can do some of that. Ideally, we want to grow children who say themselves, I, this is not good for me. So my, my youngest, uh, she downloads Instagram and then deletes it when she realizes she's looking at it too much or it's upsetting her. So mm-hmm. she has sort of learned to manage her own intake of it. And, and that's really what we're hoping our kids can do. Because yes, absolutely, it's not good for their brains. But we have to show them that. We have to show them the information that shows that those, those tummy trim teas and the filters, we need to let them know about that and explain to them how it works and not shame them for wanting to look at it because of course they want to look at it. It's what everybody's looking at right now. I totally agree. It's it's really hard to limit social media for our kids, especially if they have a phone or they're on Chromebooks at school. Um, and even I feel like if you're limiting things, you know, it seems like they can navigate around it and, um, you know, still get on social media. So I do feel like it's really hard to control. And I, I have to say, I don't really control it with my kids so much. Um, we have discussions, but but I really, you know, haven't really been in control, I would say. Well, yeah, I, I am so 100% with you. I think it, I would love to either be totally free for all and not give a care or totally locked down and control. That would, it would be such a relief to just be on one side or the other. But we're in this, this tricky middle of I'm, I'm going to allow this, but we're going to negotiate it all the time. It's, that's a harder way to parent, but it's the, it's the better way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like my son, when he was younger, it almost seemed like he was addicted to it. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a form of anxiety, but I know I also have friends who have kids that are, are similar situations where they, their kids are like, really have a hard time detaching from it. And I'm wondering, do you find that at all, like kids being addicted um, to social media? Uh, yeah, you know, I, and and I know that there's there's debate about, are we using the term addiction right? But yes, mm-hmm. do I have kids that never get off their phones? Absolutely. And I lots of parents too. It does give us a dopamine hit. And uh, I work with a lot of postpartum moms that their only connection to the outside world is social media and they're scrolling through their phones too. It's it's a very real thing. And again, we have to figure out how to live in a world with social media and how to manage it and not shame ourselves mm-hmm. that sometimes we do get stuck because it's built to to get us stuck. It's built to do that. For us. Do you have any advice on um, for people who are trying to find a therapist for their self or their child? Um, I know for us, like when I was looking for a therapist for my daughter, it was tricky because, you know, you have to find someone that your kid will be able to connect with. Um, sometimes it's also an insurance thing, but you know, you get like a sea of names and it's really hard to figure out like who to see um, and who would be a good fit for your child? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've totally nailed it that the greatest predictor of success in therapy is is the relationship, even more than the training. However, that said, there are an awful lot of therapists who don't necessarily have a lot of training working with kids. So when we come out of grad school, we are technically able to just start working with whatever age, and we might not necessarily have the training. So I think it is perfectly kosher for parents to grill therapists, I say this as a therapist, 
and ask us what our training is. Ask us what makes us capable of working with that particular age. It is okay to make us jump through hoops. Just going to tell you that. You have to like the therapist too. Your child has to like the therapist. They're going to be working with them. And you have to like them for two reasons. One, the younger your child is, the more you're going to be part of therapy. As, as I said earlier in the podcast, you have to be because you're going to be the one who's, who's living with your child and, and continuing to work with them. But you also have to like the therapist because you've got to trust us with your kid. And so you need to make sure that I am going to be able to reflect your values if you're talking to me, that, that I'm not going to undermine you in any way. Let's say that you feel strongly that all children should learn to ride bikes and the therapist is anti-bike riding. Well, that's a bad fit therapist. It doesn't matter what their training is because you want somebody who's not going to tell your kid, tell your parents to go to hell that you don't want to ride a bike, right? So, so there's that. And, and then there is all the insurance stuff and finding someone that the big thing with kids is you're probably going to have to take them out of school to come to see the therapist because very few of us have evening and weekend hours. And those of us who do, those are the first hours filled up and the hardest to get into. So there's all of that. The best way to do it, talk to your pediatrician because they should know about some therapists in the community. Talk to the school, especially the school counselor, because they should have some names too. And talk to other parents. And that's actually the best way to do it because parents will tell you what they loved and hated about the therapist. They'll tell you, I didn't like her because she cussed at her kid. And somebody else will say, I loved that she cussed in front of my kid. She's so relaxed. It'll give you a better idea of that therapist as a human being who is a therapist. And then interview us. Like I said, call us and ask us about us. And if we're not willing to talk to you before you're a client, maybe that shows that we're not a great fit for you. Because you need someone who's going to respect that you care a lot about your kid and that you might put them through a ringer a little bit. That's fine. I think that's such a good point to know that you can call before you even schedule to talk to a therapist. You know, I think because we're all just trying to get in and with the pandemic and everything and there's limited spots and they're tight, um, you know, we're just trying to get ourselves in. But taking that step back and knowing it's okay to ask for that conversation, I think is really key so that you make sure it is a good fit. It is because my big concern, because sometimes parents want me to see their kid who does not want to be seen, really does Mm -hmm. not want to be seen. And maybe they can drag them in to meet me once. And, and often, often if I meet a kid, they'll want to work with me because some of them are just scared about it. So they just need to, to see me the first time. But sometimes they really do not want therapy. I tell parents, I don't want you to poison this well. I want you to let them know that therapy is should be a place where y- you get to decide to go. You get to feel welcome. Because sometimes people will say, if you don't shape up, I'm going to take you to go see Dawn. Oh, no, I am not supposed to be a punishment. Mm-hmm. So if you want your child to see therapy as a place to go when they need help, please do not force them to go. And and that is the thing. Remember, we've at least the anxiety research shows that parents are actually the ones who will benefit not from therapy, but from sort of coaching and consulting. So even if your kid doesn't want therapy, maybe you can get therapy to parent this difficult kid. Maybe that would be helpful to you and mm-hmm. that would benefit you. And maybe there's more flexibility there because you might not have the same constraints. So If you can't get into a child therapist or your child is not willing, please consider whether or not it might benefit you. I'm saying you, the royal you, I guess. Consider whether or not it might be helpful for you to talk to someone. And again, you want someone who mirrors your values, who you can see respects you as a parent, who 
who respects your expertise on your kid because you are the expert, you know best. You're just needing someone to help sort of guide you to get over some specific bumps and bruises and hurdles with your child. That is such a helpful recommendation because, you know, if your child can't go or doesn't want to go, having that parent coach is such a great idea. I mean, even with my own story and my daughter, having um, an interim therapist, like we were waiting for her to get into therapy. And that could have been so helpful just to have someone to guide me until we can get her in um, to her therapist. So that's such a great recommendation. And there's lots of us who really love to do that work. So we love parents. Yes, we all love parents. (laughs) (laughs) I know, because it's so hard. So with that, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I guess the only thing is I know that some people are hesitant to reach out for help for themselves around parenting because they're afraid of being judged. Like that the therapist is going to say, you're just doing it all wrong. You're a bad parent. And I, we need to start from scratch. And I don't know any parenting therapist, consultant, or coach who, who does that. And I think if they did do that, you could probably figure that out by a quick phone interview. Mm-hmm. I, it, please don't let that stop you though, because again, I, I used to say, because I, I used to do uh, p- teach parenting classes before I had kids and the parents would would naturally go, what, what do you have to tell me? You don't even have kids. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, but you have all the expertise about your kids and I have expertise about like child development and and specific tools and tricks. And together we are going to figure this out. You should feel like uh, the, that the therapist is sort of like, as somebody who's coming alongside and helping you plug into what you already know, because Mm -hmm. the parents I see at least are terrific. They're doing so many things, right. They're just sort of like me with my anxious kid. I was had blinders on about it. It was if I couldn't see it objectively until I went and got my continuing education around anxiety. And then Mm -hmm. I had the light bulb moment. And then I knew how to find her a therapist who would work because we went through several therapists that were lovely people, wonderful therapists, and they didn't work for my kid. So what has been your favorite go-to resource? It does not have to be dealing with anxiety, but just your favorite go-to resource as a parent. Oh, that's easy. It's my favorite resource before I was a parent, as a parent, and as a therapist and parent educator is how to talk so kids will listen and how to listen so kids will talk. I always say it's actually the only parenting book you will ever need. It is so fantastic. I love that book. Oh, awesome. Well, I'll put that in the show notes so that people can check it out. And thank you for taking the time to discuss anxiety with me. Um, Gosh, you were so helpful and gave us so many insights on this topic. Well, I loved it. Your questions were so good that you really had me racking my brain, which I loved. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Dawn has so much knowledge and wisdom to share with us on this topic, both as a parent and a clinician. Dawn has incredible resources on her website at childanxietysupport.com. Please join us on our Facebook group where we can continue sharing our stories. And don't forget to follow Real Life Moms so you don't miss an episode.